Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Hey, uh, whether you're joining us online or right here on our campus, I want to say uh, good morning, Sunridge. Uh, I hope that you've gotten to say good morning to someone else here on your way in. And if you're a guest with us today, you don't know me. My name is Britt. I serve here as the lead pastor, and I'm going to be talking today. So I want to be one of the first, perhaps, hopefully not the very first, to say welcome to Sunridge. Got a little ring in here? My feelings are falling out. So anyway, I'm sure you guys have heard the saying before, when you stop growing, you stop dying, or you start dying. No respect at all here. No, no respect. Um, that's not just metaphorical or mental. It's physical as well. Um, in most cases, our bodies actually start to die before we actually die. So, for instance, your brain starts aging at the age of 24. Uh, most of us have, uh, at our peak, about 100 billion neurons in the brain, and that number gets lower starting in your 20s. So after 40, you could be losing as many as 10,000 neurons a day. And that's why we see so much uh, loss in memory and brain function, function as we age. Where was I? <laughs> uh, your lung capacity uh, begins decreasing at age 35. And by the time you're 70, your lung capacity is about 50% of what it was in your peak. Your heart starts to decline at 40 becomes less and less efficient as a pump. Your max, rate heart, your max heart rate goes down. You have a less elasticity in your blood vessels. And if you love butter and steak, your arteries start to get clogged, right? After the age of 40, we lose as much as 2% of muscle mass a year. Now, as we get older, <clears throat> because all of our systems are slowly slowing down, their cell replacement, our risk of dying goes up as well. At age 50, your risk of dying is three times greater than when you were 30. And then in your 60s and 70s, your chance of dying doubles about every eight years. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> but here's the good news. I have good news for you. Your risk of dying levels off when you reach the age of 105. So that means your risk of dying at age 107 or 112 is the same. So just keep your eye focused on the goal of hitting that 105 number. You hit there, you can just relax. No, really, here, here's the good news. Your soul is nothing like your human body. You can continue to grow until you get promoted into heaven. And your soul can thrive right up to the day they plant you in the ground or toast you up. But let's be honest, many of us who are Christians, we stop growing long before that day comes. 
I wonder, as we've been talking about this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, how many Christians right now, you're living faithfully, but really the vibrancy of your faith is, is, has dropped off. Maybe you're not in desperate straits spiritually, but like B.B. King saying, the thrill is gone. I don't want it to be like that for me. And I imagine that for those of you who call yourself Christians, you don't want it that way either. But maybe today your faith feels a little stale. And you, you know inside you could use a tune-up, uh, a cleanse, a little rehab. And that is what the Apostle Peter is getting after in this first chapter of his second letter. He lists seven virtues. And he says that if we pursue these virtues, if we possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then conversely, in verse 9, whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So, if these virtues, or actually, as Peter puts it, the pursuit of these seven virtues impact us so profoundly in our day-to-day spiritual life, then of course it makes sense that he would say in verse 5, for that very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. If you've been with us, you know that we've been focusing on one of those virtues each week. Next week, we're going to combine two. We're going to talk about what it means to add mutual affection and love to our faith. But today, we're talking about godliness. And the main thought as the way that we've been capturing it through this teaching series is if you want a faith that is vibrant and fruitful, then make every effort to add to your faith godliness. You know, godliness is prominent in Peter's second letter and in Paul's pastoral letters, but it's it's a relatively rare word in your New Testament. So what is godliness? In your note sheet, there's a definition. You don't have to fill anything in. Often this word in the original Greek is translated piety or holiness. And let's be honest. Holiness, when 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 you use that word or godliness today, it can get a bad rap. It's not in vogue today to be godly or to talk about holiness. And I think that that's because it's a word that's often misunderstood. For many Christians, it creates unnecessary guilt or it can be thought of because of that as unnecessarily uh, applicable to our lives, almost like it's archaic. And this word godliness uh, belongs to an era of ignominious books like the Scarlet Letter. And only a child of an English teacher would have gotten that joke. <laughs> so thank you, Nathaniel Hawthorne and mom. Often godliness, when we use that word, it's associated with being prudish or legalistic, judgmental, self-righteous, 
And I think it's safe to say that is not what Peter is saying here, right? When he says to make every effort to pursue godliness, he's not talking about becoming a Christian prude. He says, in contrast to that, that having this virtue in our lives is going to add vibrancy to our faith, is going to add fruit to our faith, not make us a spiritual snob. That makes godliness a super important word for us to understand, a concept for a Christian to embrace. We have to get godliness right, and that's what I want to talk about today, getting godliness right. First of all, godliness is a general word that summarizes the behavior expected of a Christian. Remember when we started the list of virtues and we talked about goodness? It's a, goodness is an overarching word. This means general virtue. And godliness is similar in that way that it's, it's, it's a bigger picture word. Godliness actually means like God. Not that we become gods, but that we reflect the nature and character of God and that we conduct ourselves as the image bearers of God in our world today. So godliness, when we say someone is godly, to, to use that word accurately, it means that that person is reflecting the character of God in the world today, all of it. Now, I want to contrast that <clears throat> with simply saying that we're to love. Next week, we're going to talk about love. But when we say godly, that's not in competition with loving people. We know that God is love. We know that Jesus said we're to love as he loved. But godliness describes the general character and conduct of someone who is a Christian. And, and then, so then, of course, a Christian is to be loving. But that is not the extent of representing or reflecting God in the world. Godliness doesn't exclude love. It includes it. But godliness describes the behavior of someone who is reflecting the entire character of God. So think of it like this. You're magically dropped off on a planet out in outer space inhabited by people who never heard of God. There's, there's no God, there's no Jesus, there's no church, there's no Christians, and you live among them for a year. And again, there's no church, no Christians, no Bible. And at the end of that year, you leave. Your spaceship comes and gets you and transports you from that planet. And then the inhabitants of that planet are called together, and they say, we knew that so-and-so was a Christian so what does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian like? What do they say? Hopefully, they say a Christian is loving. But what else do they say? How do they describe a Christian? What do they say about how you did business? What do they say about how you worked, your work ethic, and the way you treated your coworkers? What do they say about the kind of mom or dad you were? What do they say about the kind of husband or wife you were in your marriage? What do they say about the kind of roommate you were in college? What do they say about what were you like as a player on their team, on the basketball team? What do they say about the way you drive? Sorry. 
when they answer that question, they would be describing godliness. Or hopefully they are, right? So second, not only is it a general concept of what it means to reflect the entire character of God, but godliness means to be moral, but it doesn't mean moralistic. It doesn't mean moralistic. Stick with me here because there's a great misunderstanding here that can really trip up well-meaning, passionate Christians. God has a standard for those who follow him, and it's pretty clear and consistent in our Bibles. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the law in the Old Testament. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the example and teachings of Jesus in the flesh, and we have all the New Testament books of various apostles to describe how a Christian is to live, at least in the first century. So we have a clear moral standard, which includes eradicating sin from our lives. But we fail all the time, right? But that doesn't change God's standard. And we live, as every culture has through the centuries, we live in a society and a culture, sometimes a church culture even, that is undermining and constantly rewriting the standard that we see of godliness in the Scripture. And that is when we start to veer off from reflecting godliness in the world. For one, some Christians in every generation, and it's true today, are being more influenced by the culture that we live in than by adherence to clear teaching in the Scripture. But on the other hand, there are well-meaning Christians who genuinely try to live out the moral standards of Scripture, but they become moralistic in how they do it. And I know that some of you are like, well, I don't understand the difference. There's a difference between being moral and moralism. And this is in your notes. You don't even have to fill this part out. To be moral is to live by God's standards, as we talked about reflecting the entire character of God. But moralism is to practice morality distinct from God's grace. When someone is living moralistically or, or living by an ideology of moralism, they place an undue emphasis on, their, on moral behavior. And that behavior, that proper behavior, is uh, separated from their genuine faith. And they end up placing adherence to a moral standard as the highest value. And then the Bible for the moralist becomes this manual for moral behavior. It's a checklist that we just keep up with. The moralist relies on their moral actions for the measure of their relationship with God. So a moralist, if they, if they went to church... If they didn't cuss much that week, if they didn't cheat, if they didn't lie, then they feel good about their relationship with God. And often the moralist is more focused on the things that they don't do than the things that God has called them to do. So even though a Christian moralist would never deny their salvation is through Christ, they actually become self-deceived over time into thinking that it's their good behavior that merits God's favor and eternal life. And Paul destroys that thought 
in his letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 17. He says, for in the gospel, and what is the gospel? It means good news, right? The good news in the Bible, through what Jesus did, is that nobody is so far from God that God's love cannot reach them. The good news is also nobody is so perfect that they don't need God's grace, his saving grace in their lives. For in the gospel, this good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. The righteousness comes by what? Faith. From first to last, from the beginning to the end, it is all driven all supported by, all rooted in faith. Just as it is written, the righteous, that is the godly, they will live by rules. They will live by a higher moral standard than anybody else and feel good about themselves. They will live by faith. So where does our righteousness come from? It comes from God. It is his righteousness given to us. And how do we live that righteousness? How do we live out that godly life? By faith. So it's true, we should keep the moral law of Scripture, but our acceptance by God isn't based on our last action. It's based on our faith in him. It's not what we do. It's what he has done. You see, if we believe that our acceptance with God is based on our adherence to a moral standard, it creates all kinds of problems for us. For one, it makes it difficult for us to face our own sin, to own it. And the moralist finds it extremely difficult to admit or confess sin to others. It's extremely difficult for a moralist to admit failure to a friend or to their spouse or to a co-worker because it's to say that you failed in God's moral standard, which as a moralist, you find all your standing with God rooted in that. So it's like your brain can't even allow you to do it. So if, if you find it really difficult to own your stuff in your marriage with your friends, at work, in your church. You might have a bit of moralist in you. And here's the irony. Here's the irony of Christian moralism. We come to Jesus humbling ourselves before him, right? Crawling and squeezing ourselves through that narrow gate that Jesus talked about, and thereafter we never admit that we've sinned. We come in low and slow. And after that, it's like, it's really hard for us to say, yeah, I'm still a sinner. Christians should be the most confessional and least prideful people in the world today. So don't allow your need to live a moral life, replace your own need for repentance and genuine faith in Jesus. Now, there's another <clears throat> aspect of moralism that's in contrast to a, a an accurate understanding of godliness. We've been talking about our own self-image in regard to living up to the moral standard of Scripture 
and the moralists just cannot see themselves through the, through the lens of God's grace, that's one vice of the moralist. But, but what does moralism do to how we view others? That's the other part. Because moralism causes us to turn the magnifying glass of morality onto the people around us. Now, does, does godliness require us to be able or to have the capacity to identify sin in ourselves and others? Yes, it does. But this is where the moralist goes, if not completely haywire, at least in part, because their zealous pursuit of morality turns them into the moral police of society. I love how Tim Keller puts this. It's not that the moralist gets morality wrong, but that they, get it al- they almost get it right. Their moral compass is just a little miscalibrated, but that, that minor miscalibration leads them far from the destination that godliness intends to take them. Godliness includes living a moral life. Yes. But the moralist applies the biblical moral standard in an excessive moral criticism of others. And that's what Jesus said in, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Do you see how that, that can happen? If, we, if we're grasping onto our moral superiority because our, our feeling of relationship with God is based on it, then isn't it most natural that we're going to turn that on others as well? Now, who in the Bible, in your New Testament, exemplified that judgmental focus on others? The Pharisees, right. Now, weren't they serious about their faith? Weren't they committed? Weren't they devout in their practices? But wasn't Jesus right about them when he said in Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders? And in verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. This is the curse of moralism. The moralist is so dedicated to that standard that they're trying to live up to, that they impose it, often inconsistently, on others in a way that, it was ne- that God never intended for it to be. So then, when, when it comes to godliness, we can make two mistakes, and these are in your notes. Number one, the gospel without godliness emphasizes grace with no sense of living our lives as God intends. That can be the vice of uh, a gospel-centered life. Um, if we go too far in claiming the gospel without embracing godliness, without adding that to our faith, then we avoid all the standards that God has given us. We, we break the covenant of living that he's given to us. And our religion becomes about whatever we want to do. When Jesus said it's denying ourselves, Peter later asks in the same letter, 
that we're reading today. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. So to only talk about grace or to only talk about love without the real-life commitment of how we're called to live, it's not just a weak gospel. That's a false gospel. Actually, to address the practical implications of living out faith is not moralism or in contrast to the gospel. In fact, it is the main way the gospel is preached through our lives. When we, because of the gospel, live a godly life, we are preaching the good news. The people we are demonstrating how human beings flourish living under the same values and ideas that God has intended. The covenant God makes with his people is intended to make us stand out as his people, not always blend in. So if you're a Christian business person or you're an employee, living godly Doing your business, doing your job is a, in a godly way is the calling God has given you. And it's the way that people see Jesus in you at work. If you're a parent and you know that your kids are just being bombarded with everything today, with different cultural things, it's, a, it's so much sex, and ideologies, and they're just being like hammered with that day in and day out. Part of being a parent is helping your child to navigate that and to embrace the teachings of Jesus in their lives, even when it's going to feel weird for them. That's hard. In your marriage, your family, it's like it's super easy to just like go the way everyone tells you. Well, it's not working out. He's not making you happy. The guy at the office is giving you the eye, and he seems really nice. And so, like, the Lord wants me to leave my marriage. And it's like that's, that's not in Scripture. Divorce happens, and it's never good for anybody. Anybody that's been through a divorce, even an amicable divorce, will tell you, man, it was super painful because things rip and tear. That, And sometimes it's just unavoidable. I get it. I'm not here to condemn anyone who's been divorced, obviously. You know how I feel about that. But we're so easily taken over by the culture and how we think about our relationships, our marriages. And it just comes down to, well, uh, well, everyone else is doing these things, right? Heard that from your middle schooler? We hear from adults, too. And, and in contrast to that, Peter says, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. So one mistake we can make is to embrace the gospel without godliness. And the other mistake is godliness without the gospel. And the problem with that is it imposes a moral standard on those who don't know the God of the standard. See, the moralist justifies themselves through their morality. 
And so then they can impose that godly standard upon individuals, family members, society, even though, though they don't know the God of the moral standard. And that's why Paul told Timothy to avoid having a form of godliness but not denying its power. A godly life is produced by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works on us. So when we impose God's standard on someone who doesn't have the Spirit, it's to put a, a burden on them they can never bear. I mean, if you're a Christian doing your best to live a godly life, you know how difficult that is with the Spirit, with the Spirit's empowerment. So doesn't it become counterproductive to try to impose a standard on a person who doesn't have the Spirit? And, you know, we see all those concepts merge in uh, John 8 where uh, the woman is caught in adultery. First of all, we see the judgmental and hypocritical and inconsistent godliness uh, without the gospel and those leaders who hum humiliate her publicly. And they're just like hammering her with all this condemnation, but they're not saying anything about the man or all the men that have cast her aside and divorced her, and they're, and they're kind of throwing the divorce on her, which culturally in that first century, a woman had a, such a slim chance of being able to affect the divorce, even if it was right, that she would divorce him. All the power was in the man. So we see that. We see that version of a standard without God. We see the gospel in action, though, when Jesus says, I don't condemn you. But then we see godliness in conjunction with the gospel when Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus doesn't judge her. He doesn't just save her and leave her in her sinful condition. He saves her, and then he challenges her. Indeed, he commands her to choose another life. And that life is to live out the covenant of God, which is a moral standard. But that's not until she received the grace of God. See, moralism comes from both sides of the fence. It comes from the left and from the right. And we're left with this dilemma of how do we live out without imposing our ideology onto people who don't know the God of the ideology or the moral standard. And so, I mean, we see Christians, and I think, you know, this is, this is just Brit 101. I'm not going to point to a verse on this, but can we just have an honest moment here? You guys okay? You're not sure until I say it, right? Okay, let me say it. Christians today are going to have to figure out how to navigate being Christians in a democracy, in a world, in, in a country that isn't always embracing Christian values, right? So how are we going to do that? Do we, do we just impose it on them? I hear people who call themselves Christians basically have conflated 
everything national with their Christianity, and I, I personally, I don't see how that always ties together. I see them advocating for a theocracy. We should just go back and, and you know, like, it doesn't matter what you think. We're going to put these rules on you. You're going to live the way that we say you're going to live. Now, we get the vote here. I'm, I'm getting all that. So, like, I'm, I don't want to get too far in the weeds. You guys still with me? But it comes from the other side too, right? It comes with all this imposition of like, well, because I believe this, so you must believe it too in your church. And because I think that this is how it should be, then I want to impose this on Christians as well. And we're just at lockerheads. And immediately we're labeling one another. That's... That's creating a moral standard without knowing the God of the moral standard. So I hope that that clears up some misconceptions or questions that you had <laughs> about godliness or morality versus moralism. But I hope more than like maybe just clearing it up, I hope it makes you think. I hope you're like going, well, Britt, I, I'm not really sure what I think about that right now. Because if, if I've accomplished that this morning, whatever your view is, then, then I've accomplished what I want to accomplish. Because I think that we need to think more deeply about the things that we believe and say. And as Christians, our primary goal, as I understand it from Scripture, is for people to know Christ. And when they know Christ, God does a work in them. You guys okay? All right. Four or five of you anyway. So uh, if, we have a, if we have the right perspective about what it means to be godly, I have a couple more super practical concepts, and then I'm done. Number one, God gives us the power to live godly lives, but it does require human effort. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at this at two, two places because I know I can hear your questions right now. Because I'm a human being too, even though I'm a pastor. I don't know if you knew that or not, but pastors are human beings. I'm extra human. But our questions are, well, so I'm supposed to reflect the character of God in the world, in his image? And my life is supposed to give people a picture of who God is, what he's like? And so before I ever speak a word, about what I believe, my life is supposed to say, this is who God is? No pressure, right? I feel like I fail all the time at that. And that's probably because I do. And you do too. We all do. So how in the world are we actually going to do this? How am I, as a Christian, going to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit? How, am I, how is forgiveness going to win out in my life over bitterness? How is humility be, going to be more important to me than my pride? How am I going to show gentleness instead of anger? How am I going to love people instead of hating them? How is God going to bring out generosity in me instead of selfishness? And how am I going to control, put my body and my brain under the control of God rather than my own lusts? 
It takes the divine power of God to live a godly life. That's what Peter said. 2 Peter 1.3, it's his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. So where does the power to live a godly life come from? It comes from his divine power, from knowing him, from knowing Christ, without which I don't have a prayer. See, I think that you can live a good life, a successful life. You can be a good mom and dad without God's power. I think a lot of people do it today. But you can't live a godly life, not one that reflects God's character, not without his divine power. Didn't Paul say that to the Thessalonians in 1, 524, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The divine power of God comes into our lives, Jesus told us, by abiding in him, right? Remaining connected to Christ, relying on his example and his resurrection for the power to live the life that God has called me to live. To be loving when I want to hate. To be forgiving when I want to be bitter. To show kindness when I would rather just blow somebody up. His divine power comes through abiding in Christ. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It is his fruit that bears these things in us, Paul writes. It comes from Scripture. We learn what those divine things are that God wants to express through us. It's right there in Scripture. We don't make them up. It comes through the church. From, from being in community, we encourage one another. We build each other up in our faith. And God infuses divine power in us. Those are all sources of God's power. So if you're trying to live a godly life with all, without all of those in play, as much as you can all the time, you will never do it. So tap in to what God has given you. He has given you, Peter said, everything you need to do this. Which brings us to the second part of this concept, that God gives us the power to live godly lives, but it does require human effort. You don't just like contemplate your navel in a field and all of a sudden you're infused with divine power. Peter said, what? Make every effort. And that literally means to work very, very hard at. And he's talking to you and me. Paul said living a godly life is like training for a sport. In his first letter to Timothy 4.7, train yourself to be what? So what, what is the training for? To make you godly. How do I become godly, according to Paul? By training for it. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And we've talked about this before. The Christian life is like running a marathon, which I don't think anybody should try to do. Running is misery and it's punishment. But, you know, like a few years, consecutive years, we ran in the L.A. Marathon for World Vision. And I actually ran a half a marathon. And I've always said, I'm not a gazelle. I'm a lion. 
I'm like, I'm not built to run around in the field constantly. I'm built to sprint from here to there, capture my prey, eat it, and sleep under the tree for three days. <laughs> That's what a lion does. So when I decided to run the half a marathon, um, you know, I didn't go out and just run 13.1 miles, whatever it is. Like, I had to train for it. And they gave you this training plan. It seems so ridiculous at the beginning, especially for those of you that are like gazelles. It's like, what? You're like, you kind of walk, run for 20 minutes, run a little, walk a little. That that's what we do this week? And it just kept building and building and building. I would have never been able to go out and just run a half a marathon. Nor would I have wanted to. <laughs> so the, I, so like, I think sometimes when we hear like make effort, we think it's about trying harder. Just try harder. Try harder to be godly. Bear down. But I think the idea here is to train harder. To train smarter. And so the effort that we make, when Peter says, make every effort to add these things to your life, when it comes to godliness, the way God infuses his power into us is through the things that he has given us. And if you're trying to be godly without the resources that I men mentioned, you're just never going to make it if you're not consistent in your fellowship with other believers. And all of us have been there, right? We've all faded from connection in some way. And when you do, when you kind of feel out there all by yourself, doesn't the fire start to go out? Can't you feel it? Like when you're not around other Christians, for really, either in a small group or in your family, it's like, and you're not having conversation centered on the things of God, and you're not around other Christian people, don't you kind of like, kind of start to, your fire goes down. And if you haven't read your Bible a real long time. It's like, it just seems so basic, right? Staying in the scripture consistently. But when you've gone a long period without being in scripture, don't you feel like your mind starts to get taken over by other things? Because usually you're filling your head with other stuff, right? And pretty soon you're like, eh, it's just, your mind is just not even in the groove for spiritual things. If we don't make ourselves available for serving other people, for the work that God does in us through serving, don't you start to get a little selfish after a while? Don't you, doesn't it become like the, the longer you're not helping others, doesn't it just get more and more easy to not help other people? And you just got to keep moving further and further away from something that God wants to do in you that will help you become more godly. And if you stop praying, I mean, you're really down to just praying for meals, right? Bless this food, dude. And you're not spending any time in prayer on your commute or like when you get alone time or a run or a bike ride or whatever, wherever you pray. Um, don't you start to lose hearing God's voice in your mind? Don't you start, like... You, your, your brain's all cluttered with other things because you haven't like set aside time not just to talk to God but to listen to God. And if you haven't given yourself a Sabbath in months, you're just grinding, grinding, grinding. You just work, work, work. 
and you can't find a moment to set a day aside to rest, to be with your family, to be with God's people in some type of a gathering, to rest yourself and to refocus, don't you find yourself getting further and further distracted from the things of God? See, God has given us all the resources that we need to live a godly life, but we have to access them. That's where our effort is involved, and that's where our effort should be focused on. Not just overcoming some sin or grinding, squeezing out love for somebody, but allowing God to put into your soul and build it up so that not only do you do it, but you want to do it. Last, godliness is an appealing virtue. I'm going to have the band come up, and I should probably add there should be an appealing virtue. Remember at the beginning of the message, I talked about how godliness gets a bad rap, conjures up visions of the church lady, you know, uh, prudish, judgmental, confrontational, self-righteous, preaching at people. Those are all misrepresentations of godliness. They're counterfeits. They're counterfeit substitutes to the real thing. Because as I said in the beginning, godliness is to be like God. And being like God is appealing. It's pleasing. It's pleasant. Because it reflects Jesus, who was the perfect represent, human representation of who God is. And in John 14, 9, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me, seen the Father. You've seen me, you've seen God. I'm, I'm God in the flesh. And Jesus undoubtedly lived a godly life. The gospel tells us that he lived a perfect life, a perfect moral life, yes, but he was also self-sacrificing, and he was gentle, and he served humanity, and he demonstrated goodness the way that we talked about it. And in doing so, he was ridiculed as, but I think it was a little tongue-in-cheek, he they called him the friend of sinners. And in his perfect, godly, moral life, he confounded the moralists in the first century whose religion made them mean-spirited and isolated and afraid of being contaminated and judgmental and greedy and showy. And because Jesus reflected true godliness, the true image of God, crowds flocked to him, people that were so different than him, even though he had a perfect moral standard. So making, effort, making every effort to add godliness to your faith doesn't take us away to our little circle of safety. It doesn't make us superior to anyone who doesn't live up to the standard. And it doesn't give us a moral high ground or a license to condemn. It is completely the opposite. Living a godly life that reflects the character and nature of God gives us opportunity. The opportunity to shine the light who God really is in a world that is so confused about who he is right now.
to reflect the light of God in my family, with my kids, with my wife, with my spouse, with my crazy uncle this Thanksgiving. I'm going to be able to reflect God in that circle of relationships, in my community, in my school, at my place of work, in my business, my neighborhood. And that's where the difference is made in the world. So add to your faith godliness. Will you stand and worship with us? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.